Hey, so my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at uh, Renaissance and very glad to be with you guys today. I-, I can think of a few times in my life where I learned a life lesson. Nobody had to ever tell me this again. Uh, what I experienced was so powerful. What I experienced was so memorable that it literally was a life lesson. Uh, one of those situations came when I was about eight years old. It was during our Christmas holiday from school. It was snowing outside. And my brother and I were running in and out the house playing in the snow. And you know there's nothing better as a young kid on a cold, snowy day than to come into the house and get some nice hot chocolate. Sprinkle some marshmallows in that bad boy, and it is absolutely unbeatable. Uh, So we did just that. After coming in the house um, from playing in the snow, uh, I put my uh, Swiss Miss in the microwave, stirred it up, and pressed five minutes. First mistake. Uh, I went into my room, put on some nice dry clothes, came out, and I watched the countdown from the microwave, gently sprinkled in my marshmallows, took one blow because I was a little cautious, and then immediately took a gulp. Yes, that was the reaction that I had. Uh, Needless to say, my reflexes kicked in pretty quickly, and I spit it out as fast as I could. Uh, I probably ended up, should have ended up going to the hospital. Uh, I couldn't taste anything for like two weeks after. I had to pretend like my grandmother's world-famous roast beef uh, was still good. I I had no idea. I was just eating stuff with a numb tongue. Now, in life, reflexes and our feelings are our first guide. They teach you a formula that we've inherited as children. Pain is bad. Comfort is good. It's a pretty amazing formula for kids. Uh, It works very well because as kids, we learn based on something called the pain principle. Uh, We do this now with my son. Uh, Some of the first words that he's learned have to do with pain. So before he knew a lot of other words, before he really understood what mommy and daddy were, he knew what hot meant. He put his little grubby hands on something one good time and, and, and touched something he wasn't supposed to. We just said hot. And now whenever we don't want him to touch something, if he has my iPhone, I'm like, no, daddy's iPhone is hot. Daddy's iPhone is hot, 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 hot. Don't touch that. He's like, hot. And he knows not to play around. In life, our feelings are our first guide. They tell us what is good and what is bad. Hot chocolate for five minutes, bad. Uh, Hot chocolate for two and a half minutes while letting it cool for the prescribed two-minute period of time, that's good. And in life, we operate on this principle that pain is bad and comfort is good. Now, I thank God for reflexes. They are absolutely amazing. They keep us from getting unnecessarily hurt. But all of our lives, before we even knew this was the way that we were operating, this has been a deep narrative that you and I have inherited. Now, here's the problem with that. An equation that simplistic does not help us to navigate life as we get older, and our lives get more and more complex. There comes a point in life where that formula, pain is bad, uh, discomfort is bad, comfort is good, just doesn't cut it. All of us have situations that we're either in, we're in, or will be in, and that formula of simply avoiding all things that are painful and going as, as hard as you can uh, towards comfort just won't cut it. Uh, there's a famous scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 where the Apostle Paul says these words. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put aside childish things. I think what Paul is getting at is that there is a way that you and I can approach life that is good for us while we're children, to avoid pain at all costs. 
But that simple equation is not something that we can use if we want to become emotionally and spiritually mature. So as we're in this series called Transformed, we're looking at what are the practices, what are the things that you and I could leverage, uh, what can we do in order to truly be transformed. We're not talking about a brand new coat of paint. We're talking about adopting a new mindset, leaving aside, leaving uh, behind us childish ways that you and I used to engage the world. Now, all of us have faced things that don't fit quite neatly into our box, and, and here's where we miss out so much on transformation. Uh, we've inherited all of these different ways to avoid having to process, process through difficult things because deep down inside, in the back of our minds, we're still using this childish formula. Pain is bad, pain is bad avoid it. Comfort is good. Go after it. Now, there are times when all of us need to reverse that formula, and for me, it's this winter. Uh, I didn't say it at the first service because uh, Lawrence was here, and he would have uh, actually called me out and asked me to go work out with him in the morning. Um, but I know... <laughs> The best thing for me in the wintertime uh, is to have some pain. That the most comfortable thing on the planet is to stay in my nice, warm, comfortable bed and to never go outside when it's cold and windy and go to the gym and sweat and feel like I'm about to throw up. Now, as much as I would like to avoid pain and discomfort, the best thing that I could possibly do this winter is to invest in my health is to get up and to walk out and to feel the discomfort of the hawk outside that's cold and to go to the gym and to endure uh, workouts that would actually challenge me and push me well past my comfort zone. Now, that got me to thinking, what if in our spiritual lives we've preferred to stay under the nice warm covers, to stay under our nice blankets, to stay in our nice comfortable beds and avoid all things that could be uncomfortable altogether? What could you and I miss out on? Uh, what could God try to be, uh, be trying to do in your life, in my life, that we're missing out on completely because we're still operating in this mindset of pain is bad, comfort is good? Now, if, we are in, if it's in a controlled setting, sometimes the best thing for us is pain. And I, I read this quote, and it's uh, something that stuck with me all week. Uh, it said, there are a lot of poisons that are sweet and a lot of medicines that are bitter. If you and I are to grow into emotionally and spiritually mature adults, you and I have to leave behind this childish way of thinking, which is pain is bad, comfort is good. Because sometimes the thing that we need the most, whether or not you and I want to admit it, is things that are uncomfortable for us. Now, our reflexes and our culture regularly interpret anything that is uncomfortable as this foreign alien invasion that comes into our life and it disrupts what's supposed to be normal. So... Uh, unknowingly, a lot of times, we spend so much time trying to get back to normal, and our normal is what is comfortable, what feels good. And in that, we avoid so much, and we miss out on what God might be trying to do in our lives. What if the discomforts and pains and losses in our lives and that we encounter are not alien invasions, but what if they are designed by God to do something in your life? I've been so struck by this scripture, um, and it would take a lot of uh, a better theologian a lot more time than I have to fully uh, understand and explain all that this means. But there's a scripture in Hebrews 5 and 8, which basically says that Jesus Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. That it wasn't the, the greatest times. It wasn't the flattery that Jesus endured. It was what he suffered in which he learned obedience. Now, in Scripture, it tells us that if you place your faith in Christ, then God has predestined you and me to be conformed to the image 
of Christ, meaning that God has set your life and my life in such a trajectory that you would be made like Jesus. And if Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, if Jesus learned obedience through discomfort on his side, what makes us think that we could avoid that on ours? Now, we have a lot of great avoidance tactics on how we can avoid anything uncomfortable in our lives. And you might be in church today, and today, uh, going to church might be checking that box and saying, God, I came to church, and it's raining, and it's raining outside. That's like extra points. I should get at least two to three months of guaranteed cool time. God, you kind of owe me uh, for me being here today. And in this, we've, um, we've missed out on so many opportunities, and we're missing out on so many opportunities. There's a piece of wisdom in Scripture that comes to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a book full of wisdom. Uh, all throughout the Bible, there's a, a number of different books that give us instructions on how to live life. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, these are books that are not necessarily situational. They, they give us spiritual truths that we can apply to almost every single aspect of our lives. And here's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says, there's an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a time for laughter and dancing, and I hope our lives are filled with these good times. But there's also a time for mourning. There's also a time for grieving, for acknowledging our loss, and sometimes just sitting there in the ashes and not seeking to avoid it based on our childish way of approaching life, that pain is bad, comfort is good, I need to do whatever I can as fast as I can to get back to a place where I feel good. Sometimes the best thing for you and for me is just to sit in the ashes of exactly where we are, to not seek an escape for uh, to not seek an immediate escape that right this second you would get out of anything that doesn't feel good, to not try to run away from it, uh, but to actually sit there. I was reading a book by uh, Pete Scazzaro uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and it's been a book that we've borrowed very liberally from this entire series, and uh, we're very indebted to his work with him and his wife, Jerry Scazzaro. And he gave a list of defenses that you and I use, uh, a list of avoidance tactics that, and I just thought like, yo, this dude is, he's screaming at me right now. He's putting me on blast uh, because I saw myself in so many of these different ways, ways that you and I avoid feeling, ways that you and I avoid actually confronting what is actually going on in our interior worlds, uh, ways that you and I uh, distract ourselves from actually having to deal with what is in front of us, all in search of just getting rid of discomfort as quickly as possible. Uh, as I read these, I was deeply convicted. The first one is denial. And denial is when there's something that you probably do know about that bothers you, and you just deny it flat out and say, hey, you know, yeah, I didn't get the job that I wanted, no big deal. Um, and is it really no big deal that you didn't get that job that you actually really did want? Is it no big deal that that person didn't hit you back up for that second date? You thought the first one went good? It's no big deal at all. More fish in the sea, right? Is it no big deal at all that your relationship with your parents is not what you want it to be? Is it no big deal at all that your life isn't where you want it to be right now? That you had planned these things, and you know what? It's not a big deal. Here's what I found. So many of us uh, push down what's actually going on because we're actually afraid to feel. We're afraid to feel discomfort. We're afraid uh, because what would that mean for you and for me if we actually had to sit there with no answers on the horizon? Here's what I've discovered. 
The transformation that God wants to do in your life happens in those places. The second one on the list is minimizing. Uh, Even if you don't outright deny it, you minimize it. Well, that happened. It was kind of bad, but it wasn't that bad. And uh, this is what 75% of community group conversations are. It's acknowledging a problem and then minimizing it so you don't look too crazy. So you don't look like you're too pressed about a certain situation. Uh, I did this this week. Uh, I had a, a, um, a week where I just wasn't feeling like I was clicking on all cylinders. And I was thinking to myself, man, I wish I would have handled that conversation better. I wish I would have prepared for this better. And I was feeling a little down about my performance uh, in general. Um, and immediately, I was at home, and I was watching an HBO series where they were showing people in Iraq that were under the control of ISIS. And immediately, the first thing I thought about was, well, Jordan, your life was bad. You know, it was a little rough. Your email game wasn't on point, but at least you ain't in Iraq dodging ISIS. And that's definitely true. That's a perspective that I certainly needed to hear. But you know what I was doing? I was avoiding feeling. I was avoiding having to really process everything that was going on in my interior world by simply saying, it's not as bad as this. It's not as bad as that. And while that's certainly true, it's an avoidance technique. It's what you and I use to avoid actually having to feel. Because here's what's underneath all of this. Here's where the transformation actually takes place. When you and I look at what's going on right in the face and say, Jordan, why are you so disappointed right now? What were you expecting? What were you, uh, and more importantly, why did you expect that? What is it that you believed about God that isn't coming true? And there's hard work of transformation that happens only in those places when we don't avoid these things, when we don't minimize these things, we don't push them down, we don't pretend like they don't exist. Uh, Another one is so big, which is blaming God. Uh, We refuse to feel the weight of what's going on in our lives, and in turn, we blame God. God, you're distant, you're absent. And here's why this is so critical, and I've done this uh, many a times in my own life. Uh, Blaming God is much easier than having to wrestle with what you believed God to be that didn't come true. If you blame God and say God is distant, and you say God is absent, you say God is not all he cracked up to be, then you don't have to wrestle and think about what you actually believed about God in the first place. You can pawn it off on him that he's not all he's cracked up to be, and you don't have to do any of the hard work of looking in the mirror, of of excavating some of your previous thoughts that your theology now doesn't hold water uh, in this current situation. And it's much more painful than to actually think to yourself, hey, what did I really expect was going to happen? Why did I expect that? What were my expectations of God? How did God not meet that? Where were my expectations of God? Incorrect all along. Now, it's much easier just to simply write God off than it is to spend time doing that. Another one is, is well, for the control freaks like myself, it's blaming yourself. Uh, this is an, a great defense mechanism. If I would have just done this better, and if I would have just done this and this and this, then I wouldn't have ever had to encounter this. And if I wasn't there, and if I didn't say this, then I could avoid all pain. And Chris did a great job last week uh, telling us what we can and we cannot avoid. And here's what we cannot avoid. Everything that's going to come your way. In your entire life, there's been so many things in your life that have come to you that you would not want to have wanted, but it still come your way regardless. And a lot, of, a lot of times we blame ourselves because it's a much more convenient target that if we blame ourselves, then we won't have to deal with the fact that we're not actually in control of this world. And that's a much scarier place to be. Another one is intellectualizing. And we give analysis and theories and generalities to avoid personal awareness of difficult feelings. And we think, well, my situation is not that bad because of this, this, and this. 
Now, I was talking to my wife this week about this as we did our teaching team, and she mentioned that this is something that she's done a lot, particularly when our son was born. Um, it's such a huge blessing to have a healthy child come into this world. Um, cute kid, you know, he came out looking like an alien a little bit, but then he got cuter as, a, as the months went, went by. Y'all know kids when they first come out. Let's just, be, <laughs> let's just be honest. They look crazy, and I can say that about mine as well. But she was so embarrassed and so afraid to even say how much she was struggling with being a mom. Here she is with this beautiful blessing, but she also simultaneously lost a lot of freedom and sleep and things that she previously had, like her, she could just get up and go. When you're, you don't have no kids, you can just stand up and leave. That is like the gift, stand up and leave. Right now, you can just stand up and leave. And that's it, nobody can stop you from doing anything. And she lost that freedom. And instead of feeling like, hey, what is the weight of what I'm going through? She said, well, it's not that big of a deal. I have a healthy child, I shouldn't complain. And in this, we miss the, uh, the opportunity to sit, to grieve. And it doesn't have to be a huge loss. You minimizing stuff um, doesn't have to be, or intellectualizing things, doesn't have to be a huge loss. It could just be simply that you don't live near your family. And yes, you got the job of your dreams, and you're killing it in your career, and you go to the best church on the planet, Renaissance Church. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. But you also might be missing your niece and nephew grow up. You might have planned to get back home that one weekend to see your parents do something that was really important to them, and you didn't see it. And you're finding out all this great information about people who were close to you on Facebook. And yes, you live in the greatest city of the world. And yes, you are a train ride away from Korean fried chicken. And yes, you have all these things at your fingertips. But there's also stuff about New York that's not particularly great. We got rats. <laughs> Rent is high. And there are things in your life that might not be ideal. And here's what I see. I see so many people burn out because they're minimizing, they're pushing away things because we have been trained not to feel. We have been trained to push everything aside and to pursue comfort at every cost because we've learned as kids, pain is bad, avoid it, comfort is good, run towards it as fast and as hard as you can. Uh, the last three are ones that I see and it, it hurts as a pastor to see these happen in the life of our people. The first is over-spiritualizing, right? God got a plan. God got a plan. I lost my two front teeth, but guess what? God wants me to learn how to whistle. God has... <laughs> it's going to be all right. God is going to use... He's going to use a whistle ministry to his glory. <laughs> when people over-spiritualize, uh, here's what's going on underneath the surface. They're terrified to face the reality of what is going on in their lives. So they throw out this blanket statement uh, that numbs them from, and keeps them from actually having to experience the emotions that they are supposed to feel. And yet, we remain spiritually and emotionally immature because we're just uh, putting random scriptures on top of life's uh, most painful hurts. We're not actually processing the things that we're doing. We are terrified of actually feeling what emotions we might actually be feeling. Last, the last two uh, is when we distract ourselves. It's when happy hour turns into happy week and happy night every night. And it's not just catching up with friends, but it's that every single day you need a half a bottle of wine to just suppress and put, them, put down every negative emotion that you're feeling. And at first it starts off with just 
rough week at work. Before you know it, this becomes your habit. And before you know it, you don't even know how to feel anymore because you've been pushing them down for so long, you don't even know what's going on. For others, it's not necessarily alcohol. It's overwork, and you're just going to stay at the office even though you've got problems at home, even though your family doesn't like you. You're going to work, 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 and avoid things all together. I love a good Netflix show, but maybe it's just the, the last 10 episodes of binge-watching something, anything to occupy your mind, anything to distract you so you don't have to come and face the facts of what is going on in your life. It's an avoidance technique that we all use. The last one is one of the worst ones, and one that I experience so much is when we are, we're hostile, we're angry, and we're irritable whenever any reference is made to that one subject that gets under your skin. Uh, when I, my wife and I first met, one of the first questions I had for her was like, man, uh, when, you, when you, she lost her late husband in a motorcycle accident, and I lost my late wife to cancer, and I would always ask her, like, were you ever angry? And she was like, well, no, not really. And I was like, man, I was so, so, so angry at God. I didn't want to hear nothing about no Jesus, no church, no none of that. And I was just so, so mad at God. Jesus gave me a front row seat to watch my wife die. I didn't want to hear nothing about your Jesus. What was underneath that hostility was fear. I was terrified to actually sit and to think about what that meant for my life. I was terrified to think about how I understood God in the past. I was terrified to truly unearth what my expectations were of God and how God didn't meet my expectations. It was much easier to just be so angry and so mad at God and everybody else in this life that I didn't have to think. Now, there's a time when all of these things are necessary if you're in a particularly rough moment. But I would say that anything that jumped off the list to you might be an area that you are distracting yourself from actually feeling. And what you need more than anything else is permission to feel, permission to actually be a human being, to sit in that for just a moment, to sit in the time that God might have appointed for you and for me. Maybe what's going on in your life is not an alien invasion. Maybe what's going on in your life is not a, an interruption or a distraction. Maybe this is what God had intended. Now, as Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, Maybe you and I are learning obedience to the things and the discomforts that you and I are experiencing. Now, here's what I've learned. All of these things, distracting yourself and blaming God and yourself, none of these things lead to your transformation. All they do is delay and delay and delay and delay, and they keep us in spiritual and emotional immaturity. Uh, Gerald Sitzer, in his book called A Grace Disguised, uh, reflects on his tremendous loss and his way of words is profound in how he uh, instructs us to move forward in spite of discomfort in our life. He says, the quickest way to reach the sun in the light of day is not to run west chasing after it, but to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. The quickest way for you and I to experience transformation is not to run after the sunlight of comfort, but it's to run east into that thing that you're distracting yourself or avoiding because there is probably the place that God is trying to develop something in your life. Now, it's, it's a scary thing, and uh, I was thinking about this this whole week on what it means for us to actually live this out, and I stumbled across a scripture that just really hit me um, in, in my heart. It comes from 1 Peter 4 and 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We're told in the scripture that you and I need to arm ourselves in the same way of thinking. And I thought that was a pretty profound and provocative way to describe 
our thought life. Why would Peter say that you should arm yourself with a certain way of thinking? I think what he was suggesting was that there is a certain way that you and I are vulnerable. That only time you need armor is when there is an incoming threat, an incoming danger that you are vulnerable to. And the best way to prevent against it, the best way to survive it, and the best way to advance is to arm yourself, is to protect yourself. And he says that we protect ourselves and we arm ourselves by adopting this way of thinking that Jesus himself had. So he says to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Uh, So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And to not arm yourself in the same way of thinking that Jesus had about his uh, discomforts and challenges would mean that you and I are left vulnerable, would mean that you and I are left defenseless to a certain degree. Now, how did Jesus approach life and suffering and challenges and discomfort? It most certainly was not the childish approach of pain is bad and comfort is good. Now, all throughout the centuries, uh, without a question, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ from Nazareth, regardless of um, if you're a Christian or if you even know where you stand, I bet you Jesus is a pretty profound person to you uh, because there's nobody on the planet in the history of the planet that has affected earth quite like Jesus. There's more books written about Jesus than any other human being on the pl- on the, in the history of the planet. The Bible is such a bestseller that they've, re- they've completely removed it from every bestseller's list because it is so far and above every other book that everything else dwarfs in comparison. There are more hospitals and schools named after Jesus and his followers than anybody else on the planet. Jesus was a profound person for two reasons. One, he came to bring us closer to God, for sure. But secondly, I think it's also because Jesus shows us what it truly means to be a human being. When our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were kicked out of the garden, they lost more than a relationship with God. They lost what it meant to be a human. And Jesus shows us what it truly means to live, what it truly means to trust, what it truly means to endure, what it truly means to live a life that's pleasing to God. Now, if we were to arm ourselves um, with the same way of thinking, I think I wanted to approach a text in which we see Jesus coming right in the face of his, most, um, his biggest foe, which was the cross and, and separation from God. And we see a portion of scripture that shows Jesus modeling for us what it looks like for us to be human, to feel, to not avoid, to not distract, to not blame, but to truly sit in those moments, to sit in those ashes and experience transformation. Uh, it comes from the Gospel of Matthew in the 26th chapter in a scene called the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. He told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell down, face down, and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you will enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, 
let's go see my betrayer is near. Now, when Jesus was facing the cross, he did not over-spiritualize it. He did not say, well, this is going to be for the salvation of the world, everybody. Jesus sat in the ashes. One scripture in Luke describes Jesus' reaction. It says that he was sweating blood. Here's what we see from Jesus, the first thing, or what it looks like for us to actually truly uh, allow the transformative process of our losses to, and to truly sit in these ashes, what it looks like. And the first thing we see is that Jesus paid attention to his internal world. He paid close attention to what was going on in his internal world. Um, there's uh, so many theologians that uh, have written about this one passage of Scripture because it's, it's so rich and it's so profound, and we see Jesus saying things that you might not even expect Jesus to say. And he says in verse uh, 38 that, uh, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Imagine that level of introspection by the Savior of the world. I am deeply, deeply grieved to the point of death. He wasn't glossing over what he was experiencing. He wasn't glossing over what he was feeling. He wasn't trying to avoid the moment of where he was. He sat in those ashes, and he sat there and said, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. In the church, we have a very little theology for anger, sadness, and depression. We ask people how you're doing, and we walk away before they even say what they've said. Jesus, on the other hand, screams out to God, God, and he holds nothing back. Now, one of the things I've always been blown away is even the very book of the Bible that we learn how to pray, the Psalms, two-thirds of them are laments. Now, we've all might have heard a great psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He, in all these beautiful psalms about what God is going to do, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But two-thirds of the psalms, the ones that we don't want to quote too often, two-thirds of them are saying, God, where were you? Where were you? Why are you sleeping? Everybody else is succeeding, and I'm over here riding a struggle bus. God, where are you? You're absent. One of the things that I had to feel free to do, one of the things I've struggled with the most in my life was learning how to pray angry prayers. After my late wife passed away, my therapist uh, checked me one time and said, Jordan, how's your prayer life going? And I said, oh, you know, it's going straight, you know, you know, reading through the Lord's Prayer and all of this. And she said, hey, you know that you can pray angry prayers, right? I said, Doc, I don't think you know how angry these are. These are prayers that I, couldn't, I could not use some of these words on a stage in front of children. I was so angry and so hostile, and she said something that just was the biggest uh, weight lifted off my shoulders. She said, Jordan, if the God of the universe cannot handle your anger, is he even God? God can handle your disappointment. God can handle your anger. God can handle all of these things for you, from you and from me. And God is not less God because, first of all, God knows everything on your mind and your heart anyway. He's not surprised that you're like, God, I'm angry. Really? At me? And we rob ourselves from paying attention to our interior world, and we just pretend like everything is okay, or we put a pious Christianese slang on the end of it if you're a Christian, or you avoid God and church altogether. Maybe you're um, back to church for the first time in a long time, and maybe you're, you've stayed away for such a long time because you were mad at God, you were angry, and you didn't even know what to do, and part of that is because you're not paying attention to your interior world. You're not sitting there in the ashes. The second thing is that Jesus prayed honestly through his situation. Uh, I, as I read the scripture even earlier, I was thinking about, man, like it wasn't that Jesus 
just prayed one time, Father, if it's, your, if it's okay, let this cup pass from me. But it says over and over and over again, Jesus praying the same thing. Father, if it's okay, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Here's what he's doing. He's wrestling in his prayer life with God the Father, God the Son, wrestling with God the Father in his prayer life about, God, I don't want this to happen. And he's praying honestly. Now, when we don't do this, here's what I see most of the time. Uh, it's not like that stuff just goes away. We just leak it out in other places. So maybe you're not praying honestly to God, but now you're leaking out in anger and frustration and discouragement in other, in other relationships. Maybe you are now unnecessarily pessimistic about your outlook of life in general. And part of that is because we haven't sat down in the ashes to process uh, our disappointments and what it looks like to, feely, to, to truly feel and lastly, we see Jesus uh, prayed something that I am absolutely terrified to pray. Um, it says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He looked in the face. He knew what was coming ahead of him, and he entrusted the direction of his life to God, his Father. Now, it's one thing to entrust the direction of your life to God when it's going in the direction that you're okay with. Like, God, you know, out of these three options, I'm cool with one of these three. But when there's a hundred different options or when there's an option that you definitely do not want ahead of you, um, it's so difficult for us to entrust the direction of our lives to God. And instead of actually sitting in and feeling what's going on and paying attention to our interior world, and instead of honestly praying, and instead of uh, ever being able to truly entrust the direction of our lives to God our Father, we avoid instead. Now, I read this quote uh, this past week that really uh, humbled me deeply uh, it said, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God would allow something bad to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Under that rationale, if there is a God, then of course he would know things that, are, that you and I don't know about what's best for us. And here's what God is trying to take us towards Christ-likeness. The path of our lives, if you put your faith in Christ, is not on a path, on a speeding train towards whatever vision of life that you have created for yourself, but that God is actively working to make you more like Jesus. That's the promise that he gives us in Scripture. And we miss out on so much, so much opportunities for transformation because we avoid and avoid anything that doesn't fit into the plan that we had decided for ourselves. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot is a prominent Christian writer, and she wrote um, about her trip to northern Wales uh, and her sheep farm, and how incredibly difficult it is to trust in God when the direction of our life is not going in the direction we want. Um, her friend was a sheep farmer, and she shared how sheep are vulnerable to being eaten by, to death by insects and parasites. So once every year, the shepherd has to take the sheep and put them in a huge vat of antiseptic and completely submerge them under the water. The farmer, in, in order to save his sheep from death, has to actually hold them underwater until they've been completely disinfected. Uh, as she puts it, one by one, they seized the animals, and they would struggle to climb out the side. And the sheepdog would bark and snarl at them and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the other end, the farmer would catch them, spin them around, and force them under again, holding their ears and eyes and nose submerged for a few seconds. And as their shepherd was pushing their head under, drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the ledge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is this dude doing? Reflecting on that experience, Elizabeth uh, Elliot continued, 
I've had some experiences in my life in which, um, which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I could not figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd, whom I trusted. And like the sheep, I didn't have a hint of explanation. Sometimes the activity in your life, there will be no explanation for it. And you're going to have to sit in those ashes for that moment and make a decision. What direction are you going to go? Are we going to entrust the direction of our lives to ourselves or to God? Because quite honestly, there's only two options, particularly when, the, uh, when what's ahead of us is something that we don't understand and is not comfortable. Over the years, um, I've talked to so many people and I've lived through so many situations where it felt like, man, God, I cannot pray that prayer. Your will be done in my life. And as I looked over the ledge of the antiseptic that I felt like I was being pushed under, I looked at it as a shepherd and I didn't understand what he was doing. Here's the only thing that's ever kept me grounded. Here's the only thing that's ever uh, helped me even get close to praying that prayer, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's that if Jesus was not willing to give up on me because of the enormous pain he was suffering in that garden of Gethsemane and eventually going to the cross, then nothing else would make him give up on me. And that truly there is nothing in all of creation, not even my doubt and fear, that can separate me from the love of God that I see in Christ Jesus. And whenever I'm doubting, whenever I'm fearful of whether or not God has good intentions for me, whenever I, I doubt whether or not God wants actually good things for me, man, I have to look to the cross. Now, there are times when you and I need to sit down and to weep deeply about what is going on in our lives, to grieve, to feel whatever it is that you're supposed to be feeling in that moment. And then we're supposed to get up, wash our face, and trust God. And you're not going to find that determination anywhere but the cross, which is God's exclamation point to you and to me that he has given his all. And if God did not spare his own son, if God did not spare his own son, as Paul says in Romans 8, will he not graciously, along with him, give us all things that we need? Now, in just a moment, we're going to have something called communion. And uh, communion is a, is a practice that Christians have engaged in for thousands uh, of years and for thousands of years, Christians have come together as a family to remember what Jesus did for them on the cross. If you're new to church, um, if you're new to Renaissance, if this is your first foray in Christianity, uh, and you're like, wow, this is cool, this church does this thing called communion every week, or most weeks, it's because we're so prone to wander away from God's love for us and God's care for us that we find in the cross. Now, here's the thing. If you have seen yourself in that list of denying or and minimizing or intellectualizing or over-spiritualizing or whatever it is that is your go-to defense mechanism. I want you to think about that thing that you're avoiding, and I want you to come to the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and say, Jesus, as difficult as this is, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, if you're new to church and you don't know where you stand with God, I would just love for you just to remain in your seat. Please don't feel pressure to get up because other people are getting up around you, but that you would just remain and think about uh, what it looks like uh, for you and your relationship with God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, there are so many times in life that we uh, may not be able to truly understand what is going on, and we may not be able to even see our way forward. And I, I just pray, God, that we would in those moments, pause and allow ourselves to feel, and we wouldn't rush through and try to avoid what's going on in our interior worlds. And God, would you give us faith? Would you give us comfort? Would you give us courage 
to trust in you. God, would you lead us to a place that we can say those words, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. God, you know our fears, you know our hang-ups, you know our hesitations. We pray that you would lead us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.